0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The ENDS Report. In this episode, we'll examine why developers are taking on natural England over water resources. We'll look at the new green watchdog's first howl of disapproval. And we'll look at what the government's levelling up plans mean for environmental assessment rules. Then Jamie's going to quiz us on the ENDS Report's inaugural power list, and very exciting it is too, Following that, Jamie and I are going to take a deep dive into the terrifying topic of the sixth extinction. And finally, Gareth and Simon, our chemical brothers, will be along and they're going to warn you away from grease-proof bags. You won't be able to look at your pastry-based takeaway in the same way ever again. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and as usual, I'm here with our editor, Jamie Carpenter... Hello. And journalist Tess Colley. Hello. First up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Now, our first story is about the increasing pressure on water resources and how developers are fighting Natural England's advice. So, the nature regulator has written to a handful of councils in a water-stressed area advising that any new development in what's called the Sussex Water Supply Zone should demonstrate that they would not increase the demand for water in the area. So the regulator is worried that the current levels of abstraction, which means the current levels of water being taken out of the environment, are damaging some of the protected habitats in the area. And that could lead to deterioration, which in turn would lead to a breach of the habitats regulations. So developers are not happy. They say it's going to block house building in the area. In fact, they're so unhappy that they've taken action. Can you please fill us in on what's going on, Tess?
1: Yes, so a group of developers, as you say, including the 50 Two Hundred and Fifty House Builders, Redrow and Bellway, they've hired one of Britain's leading barristers in planning in the environment to, to look at a way to overturn these rules. The Telegraph actually reported on a first on the headline, House Builders Fear Fresh Assault from Rare Snail Species. Good God. Uh, which sounds, <laughs> sounds like a B-movie. Yeah, I'd watch that. But, you know, obviously that conceals a few more nuances in the story. mm mm-hmm. Water neutrality, is, it's quite a new thing. It reared its head at the end of last year, but it follows in the wake of all the fury around nutrient neutrality, which we've covered lots. I was getting on, deja vu here. I know, I know, <laughs> neutrality everywhere. Lots of people I've spoken to over the last few months, they've said, you know, this is probably going to be the next nutrient neutrality. It's probably going to be rolled out to other parts of the country where there are over-abstraction of water near or around protected sites. However, the government has now said that you know, Natural England and DEFRA have done a review and it's not going to be rolled out. To other councils, it's not what a lot of people I've spoken to think will happen. Who are these the people end. and what do they think? Oh, it's a range of people. There's the water company, Southern Water, mm-hmm. who obviously are you know, involved in all of this. They've spoken to ENS on record saying you know, this is not going to probably go away. Consultants saying you know, it's really going to probably need uh, central government kind of a pun of policy lever to, to really sort it out. Mm-hmm. There's a very similar debate that's gone on with nutrient neutrality. But, yeah, it's a new development now to have a, house builders wanting to get a, a QC involved. Perhaps they think they're trying to get in early, yeah, like they didn't with nutrients. So are the developers
0: suggesting alternatives? Have they given options for what they could do or for what the water company could do or for what the
1: council could do? Yes, so they, they've written a letter to Horsham District Council in this case and they do put forward a a couple of solutions one option involves provision of new water infrastructure to pump fresh water upstream to kind of solve the problem that way Mm -hmm. the other option involves increasing the delivery of water pump from Portsmouth which is nearby um, which according to this letter is already happening Um, so those are the two options they put forward so they're just saying bring water from other sites
0: and then we won't have to abstract more from the groundwater here and everything's going to be okay yes what other options might there be available to developers to get around this problem, Jamie?
2: Well, I think the difficulty for developers is that some of these measures aren't actually that popular with house buyers. So one thing you can do as a developer is is to install showers rather than baths because mm. they use less water or, or things like grey water recycling systems. Yep. So there's stuff like that you can do. But, but I think ultimately the problem with this issue like nutrient neutrality is that the solutions are quite difficult and long term to put in place. Mm.
0: So in this Sussex water supply zone, obviously there are some designated areas that are needing to be protected and that's why Natural England has written this letter. Uh, Jamie, can you tell us about those protected sites?
2: The areas that Natural England are concerned about specifically are the Aran Valley Special Protection Area and Special Area of Conservation and Ramsar site. And and the reason it's concerned is it's kind of a real-life example of the precautionary principle in action which we'll be talking about principles later. We will. We're but, always uh, talking about
0: <laughs> pre- precautionary principles yes. and others.
2: So basically, because of the precautionary principle, naturally can't rule out a link with any certainty between water abstraction and the population decline of the little ram's horn snow. snail.
0: Right, OK. okay.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> More on precautionary principle later. So this is creating a real problem for developers, and as we know, the government has very ambitious housing targets but with nitrate neutrality or nutrient neutrality it's essentially phosphorus and nitrates and water neutrality it looks like it's going to be a real fight between the environment on one side and housing people on the other we'll be keeping a close eye on this and we'll come back to this in in future episodes if you're interested in nutrient neutrality there is so much information on the energy report.com. you need to go and have a look at that because we've been covering it for a couple of years and the national media picked it up like two weeks ago so you know you heard it here first a long time ago Right, our second story is about the new green watchdog, the Office for Environmental Protection. It has published its first new report, which looks at the government's progress against its 25-year environment plan, which was published back in 2018. That included ambitions for nature, water, air, waste management, and the, the whole gamut. Now, everyone's really interested in whether the OEP is going to be a Rottweiler, a Terrier, or more of a lap dog. So Tess, what's in the report, and what does it say about how firmly... The watchdog is going to scrutinise and hold the government's feet to the fire.
1: Yes, so as you say, everyone was keenly awaiting this this report last week. It's the, the watchdog's first big report. A lot of green groups, they've welcomed it. They said this is an example of you know sharp analysis. So that's good for the OEP. Not so good for the government. They really do lay in quite firmly, though very politely, to in particular a lack of coherency as they see it across policy. You know, they point out that even just in DEFRA, never mind the rest of the government, there are about 47 different strategies, environmental improvement. They all overlap, but it's not really clear exactly how they all interconnect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They talk about a proliferation of targets. It's not a problem, that there aren't enough, but there's so many and there's no real accountability for their completion or not. And so in part what they call for is, you know, the government actually needs to take, there needs to be better accountability structures and they suggest that perhaps the government might like to actually report on why they miss targets. Uh, when that they would do. be helpful, yeah. Yeah, rather than just as they say, you know, setting often more challenging mm-hmm. targets mm-hmm. in the wake, which I think we'd all agree could be an interesting read. Another thing which is quite interesting, considering the current consultation out on targets, is they talk about. There have been a steady decline in environmental monitoring in yeah. the past 30 years and how basically we need just a big environmental stock take, as they put it. In particular, there's big gaps in biodiversity and water quality data. Yeah, there is. Which is something, again, we've been covering recently on... on just for uh, a few years? Just, yeah, recently <laughs> for a few years. And, you know, they really talk about that. The solution they suggest is that the Office for National Statistics should get more involved,
3: which could mm. be interesting.
0: What I found really interesting was that the OEP's chair, Dame Glenis Stacey, she said that DEFRA's review of arm's length bodies, which is ongoing at the moment and was proposed in the uh, Nature Recovery Green Paper, could be an opportunity to focus sort of more clearly on those 25-year environment goals and improve accountability, which I think is a good point. Jamie, what do you think about the OEP and how it's functioning?
2: We've been talking about the OEP for a long time now, sort of through the passage of the Environment Bill, the concerns about whether it's got enough independence, so those sorts of things. And, and now we're kind of in a position where it feels that the OEP is a point where it's it's a pretty much fully formed, fully functioning body. And similarly, Environmental Standards Scotland, its equivalent north of the border, has also kind of reached that kind of state. So we've got um recent announcement that Natalie Prosser has been appointed the permanent chief executive of the OEP um, in the last few weeks. Environmental Science Scotland has announced its own permanent chief exec, Mark Robert. So it's still fairly early, but I think we can we can we can expect to hear a lot more from these new bodies now in in 2022 and more more interventions like the OEP's big report just came out.
0: That's good. It'd be good to to hear more from these bodies going forward. Um, the government itself has made big claims over the years that it's going to leave the natural environment in a better state than it inherited it, which is great. But so far, there's not much evidence on the ground that that's happening although there is lots of policy in the pipeline, as we've been discussing in previous episodes, including the Environment Act 2021. But underpinning much of this policy would be the environmental principles, which we mentioned earlier, including the precautionary principle and the polluter pays principle. So the government last week, after long delay, finally published this formal policy statement relating to this. Can you give us a quick update on it, please, Tess?
1: Yeah, well, this policy statement, it's, I mean, the OEP itself said in its report that it's going to be vital for more coherent governance and accountability across government so yeah really important it hadn't been seen for absolutely months but now it's out which is good because it now means that these principles are going to be laid before government for scrutiny, which moves the process on a little bit more. What are the functions of these principles? Mm. Well, there's five, firstly. I won't list all of them, but one of them is the precautionary principle, which we've talked about today. And this statement is meant to inform policy making across Whitehall, right. apart from in the Treasury and Ministry of Defence. Yes. Um, Controversial. Two big uh, exceptions. But meant to instil environmental principles across policymaking yeah. and therefore make sure that there aren't huge gaps places where there's just no care for the environment at all but it's been missing all this time and of course all this policy being brought forward at the moment which we've been talking about green groups however they're not although they're pleased it's out they're not particularly happy with the actual statement they think it's pretty weak and they're particularly concerned about the the timelines even though it's out now it will go for scrutiny up towards the end of july then you have the summer recess and then the government's talked about wanting an implementation period so really we could it could be twenty twenty three before it's actually implemented across government mm. and that's a long time in long time in politics. It really is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Jamie, are people happy with the strength of the policy statement?
2: No. <laughs> They're not. No. I think one of the comments that seems to have come through in response is a kind of concern that we're kind of heading towards a US style system of regulation. So I think the and that's particularly around the. What do they
0: mean by that?
2: I think it's because the the framing of the precautionary principle is kind of around innovation, which I think kind of sparks oh. some concern that maybe it's not going to be as precautionary as it might be under the EU model.
0: A gung ho model. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Throw it out there and let's see what happens once it's already out and we can't do anything about it. <laughs> approach. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've seen people saying the same things that. Um, the government's obviously saying that uh, the precautionary approach would be based on realistic assessments of risk and not just theoretical hazards, but I think I'd prefer to dodge a theoretical risk than a very real one any day. And they want a very, very high threshold of proof to prove that, that level of risk, which, as we know, th- how long it takes for science to catch up with whether, I, for example, a chemical is you know, persistent, bioaccumulative or toxic or whatever it might be, can take years, can take decades. So I can't really see that that's going to help. Tess, you reported that the section of the Environment Act that requires the policy statement isn't enacted yet. Why yeah. Why
1: is that? Good question. Um, many parts of the Environment Act with regards to governments have been enacted. Even last week, the parts of the Act which call for there to be a environmental principles policy statement, that was enacted, hadn't been until last week. But there's this particular clause about compliance, and it's still not legislated
0: i mean is that just a practical thing because the statement's not ready and therefore they haven't or you know is it a bit more cynical than that
1: it could be it could be part of it i think things are really delayed across government at the moment Mm. however little garnish of cynicism um garnish (laughs) Garnish. lovely uh you know (laughs) it's always important i think to have with these things and yeah i think it's a cause for concern with green groups for sure The statement is going to be presented to Parliament for debate
0: and we will bring you more on this topic as it comes. So our final story now is about levelling up. Earlier this month, the government published its levelling up and regeneration bill, which sets out its plans for closing gaps across the UK in the areas of child illiteracy, life expectancy, living standards and so on. But the area that we're interested here in the Eco Chamber is the government's planned new approach to the environmental impact assessment regime known as EIA. Now, currently, EIA is used to work out the impact of a development on the environment, including its impact on the habitats of protected species, like great crested newts and bats. That's all set out under the habitats regulations. And the government, however, we've known for a long time that they don't like EIA. Boris Johnson said in 2020 that newt counting delays are a drag on productivity. And George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, said the regime was clunky, bureaucratic, and involved far too many consultants. He said he wanted a better baseline of understanding... Uh, so that there would be a clearer picture of where developers were likely to be able to build. So there's some truth in, in what uh, Eustace is saying. Any a report can run to thousands of pages and be very complicated, but um, is the government in danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, Jamie, or, or the newt with the pond water, <laughs> which might be a better metaphor?
2: Yeah, I think that's the concern. I mean, there's kind of quite a lot to digest in the bill and, it, and its notes, because we've known for a while that the government's going to reform this regime, so environmental impact assessment, which relates to projects, and also the strategic environmental assessment regime, which relates to plans. So we've known for a while that they're going to do this or they wanted to do this, and we've had an outline of what they wanted, but this kind of really drills down into the detail of the plan for the first time, but it still kind of raises quite a lot of questions as well at the same time.
0: What Um, questions is it raising?
2: Well, one of the questions is whether... What the government is proposing is really just a a kind of a rebrand of the existing process without masses of changes or whether it's something more fundamentally different than that. So what they're talking about doing is replacing EIA and SCA with this new system of environmental outcomes reports. Mm. So basically what that means is that the government will set out clear and tangible environmental outcomes which a plan or project is assessed against. So it's a kind of a new thing and it will allow the government to reflect its priorities directly in the decision-making process and, and will will turn passive assessment into a more active tool to support environmental regeneration. It sounds great.
0: Does sound good. Yeah. It does sound good, but there's no details on how that would look or what, how the process would be? Yeah, different, or... this
2: is where it kind of gets a bit, made me scratch my head a little bit really. So when I'm reading it, it sounds quite similar to the EIA process. So what the Bill's going to do is allow the Secretary of State to make regulations that will set out the consents that will require an environmental outcomes report. So they're describing these as Category 1 consents, which will always require okay. a report, which sounds a bit like what happens with the EIA process at the moment where there are certain types of development where you have to have an EIA done. Yeah. And there's a Category 2 category, to a, <laughs> a different word that I can't think of at the moment, where people will only be required to produce a report where it meets certain criteria. So that might be a good thing because it, it could mean that a broader... Range of projects or plans are required to have one of these things done at the moment, but that's kind of up to the government to decide, so it kind of remains to be seen.
0: I mean, is there a world in which fewer developments might fall under EIA?
2: Yeah, that could be an option where I think at the moment there are certain sort of thresholds Mm -hmm. for development size where I can't remember what it is, it's sort of numbers of homes, I think. So it could, I suppose, presumably, this could give the government the option to apply this process to kind of larger schemes and fewer would then hit that threshold. So that, that might be part of the thinking.
0: And is there anything in there on zoning? Because I think the planning bill, which was then scrapped when Gove came in as uh, Housing Secretary, there was talk of zoning areas mm-hmm. or of hands-off areas for development and then areas where development was more likely to be approved. Mm.
1: The zones have gone. Entirely. been zoned out. Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, they were so controversial and that was mm-hmm. partly why, you know... Cool. All the fuss, Robert Jenrick. Remember him? If you um, do, Yes, he's fondly. Well, he's gone now. People <laughs> <alone> mentioned him. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he's gone with the zones. Yeah. So that's gone, and you know, there's a few other things that I mean, you know, that there's no actual mention of the big cows, three hundred thousand homes target, mm. not mentioned. Um, <laughs> Maybe they hope people will forget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people would say it's a watering down of what was in the planning bill, but I think this, these bits on environmental impact assessment. They're not particularly watered down. They're probably what they wanted to bring in in the first place. They're the Environmental Outcome Reports, EOR, have already been dubbed the EOR regime Ah, reports. Excellent, very good. (laughs) Good to know. My reading of it is just it it could go either way. In theory, this could be good. They could make protections stronger, Mm. but it also gives a carte blanche much more leeway from deregulation.
2: I think one of the concerns that there's, it gives this leeway for the government to swap out existing environmental protection requirements with these new rules so so apparently this could mean potentially that meeting the new requirements will be taken satisfying any obligations under the habitats regulations for example which i think people are quite concerned about so yeah Uh, so uh, big questions there
0: yeah absolutely it depends a lot on how the outcomes are defined obviously and then how they're implemented and then how they're measured and are they enforced because even under the current regime i'm not sure who goes back to a development 15 years later to check that all those environmental improvements all you know agreements uh, were actually followed through so uh, we'll be watching this one as well so now it's quiz time and Jamie every fortnight has a brand new quiz that we are woefully unprepared for and this one is about the End Report's first ever power list over to you Jamie yes
2: yeah, so you're not the only one that's woefully unprepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> so partly because we're recording this now and the power list is not quite finished but hopefully by the time the podcast goes live it'll be up and working properly so the power list, we're excited about putting it together at the moment, nearly finished. It's a listing of the 100 most influential environmental professionals in the UK. Did you um, put
0: yourself on it, Jamie?
1: Well, I was, I was, I was, I was tempted
2: one. when a few of the names dropped out at the last minute and I was trying to <laughs> scrabble around to find someone else to put in, but I didn't end up going down that route. <laughs> <laughs> Not, this yeah, Not this year. Yeah, Maybe next year. So mm. this has been a really, really big exercise. Um, it's kind of quite big undertaking it's taken quite a lot of thought because one of the things around it was how we framed it what type of people we wanted to include and and, and in the end we've gone with an approach where it's not like a power list in the traditional sense because when you see these they quite often end up as a, a kind of a rundown of people who have on paper might have it within their power to wield a lot of influence but they tend to be quite dull so you have People like the chief execs of regulators and... You're saying they're dull. You're calling James Bevan dull. No, I wouldn't do that, no, no. But um, we didn't think that was going to really produce something that was valuable. So we wanted to have something with a bit of colour and we also wanted to recognise some of the really, really good work that people do within the profession, perhaps at more more junior levels and sort of shine a light on those unsung heroes. Mm So in hindsight, it might not be the right thing to call it a power list, but I think hopefully it's... uh, a valuable piece of work and people will respond to it so the quiz this is going to be a version of guess who ah so what I'm going to do does he wear glasses that kind of thing <laughs> we could do that maybe next time so I'm, I'm going to read some of the citations and you can try and guess who I'm talking about okay great do we do buzzers again or will we be on buzzers let's should should just shout <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay I've got three individuals here I think they're all guessable no pressure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the first one, this person is on the list because they deserve recognition for the outstanding contribution they made to the Strengthening the Environment Act. They were the pivotal link between parliamentarians in both houses and green groups during the passage of the Act. And they were unfailingly helpful in drafting, finding the right contacts, linking the right people and supporting the best environmental outcomes for the landmark bill.
1: Ruth Chambers.
0: Ruth Chambers is a good one. Ruth yes. Yeah. Wow. It was Ruth Chambers, correct. Oh, very
2: good, very good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's really well deserved. She had more than one really, really strong nomination. To um... I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, next one, this person took on a massive job at an organisation that had been under pressure from budget cuts and criticism. Tony at... Juniper. Correct. <laughs> yes. So that is Tony Juniper. He's on the list. He's described as having passion and commitment, and praised for securing these budget increases for Natural England for mm. the first time in a long time. In a long time, yeah. And final one, so the nomination read, Arguably this person has done more in just over a year than the Environment Agency and many established NGOs have done in the past decade to convince government of the urgent need to reduce sewage pollution in English rivers.
0: Peter Hammond, Peter Hammond. Peter right. Hammond, yes.
2: <laughs> he's now retired, but he's a mathematician who's got more than 40 years' of experience as a university academic, and, and what he's done is kind of used big data to really shine a light on the amount of sewage that's being discharged across from different sewage works, I think mainly on the Thames.
0: Yeah, his work has been integral, I think, in, in the um, investigation that's been launched by the Environment Agency in into sewage spilling across the industry, which they recently said, their initial investigation has said that it's widespread and on large scale. <laughs> and nice. everybody is thinking, no, Sherlock. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think he's great. Yes. Again, friend of ends. Friend of ends, yes. <laughs>
2: Maybe next week I'll make the quiz more difficult, but I think one of the really nice things about the power list and the exercise, although it's been very stressful and taken ages, the first part of it we did was a, a survey and some of the stories and nominations that we got were just really nice to read and, and just show showed that there's, a, there's a load of really, really deserving work going on at all levels within the environmental sector.
0: Thank you, Jamie. That brings us to the end of our big green news section. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Tess. We're going to be back with more and hopefully some updates on what we're talking about today in a fortnight's time. Or you could go to endsreport.com in the interim. Next up is our deep dive section. In this episode, Jamie and I are going to look at the bone chilling issue of the sixth extinction, also known as the Holocene or the Anthropocene extinction. Well, Strap yourself in folks, it's as bad as it sounds. The sixth extinction is a mass extinction event, defined as when species vanish faster than they are replaced. The first one took place around 443 million years ago, give or take a few years, and wiped out around 85% of all species. It was thought that, that was caused by a period of plummeting temperatures followed by rapid warming. The second was around 374 million years ago, thought to have also been caused by fluctuating temperatures and sea levels. And the third was blamed on an asteroid and volcanic activity, as was the fourth, which did for most of the dinosaurs. And the fifth, around 65 million years ago, which finished off the rest of them. So the current mass extinction, well, that one's on us. I mean, I mean the human race more broadly, not me and Jamie. We're not that powerful <laughs> yet, although maybe we'll make the list next year. Anyway, a natural rate of extinction is said to be two species per 10,000 species per every hundred years. But the rate of extinction now is between 100 and 1,000 times higher than pre-human background rates, according to scientists. And the range and distribution of species is shrinking too. And even normally measured scientists, who are no friends of hyperbole, have been writing in journals such as the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences saying this massive loss of wildlife is a biological annihilation and a frightening assault on the foundations of human civilization. They said it would be unethical not to use language that strong, it's that serious. So, Jamie, how have we managed this extraordinary feat of self-harm?
2: This very much is on us. So, unlike the extinction of the dinosaurs, which is something my five-year-old twins are absolutely fascinated by at the moment, this is completely driven by human activity. So there are estimates that suggest that we need around one point six earths to maintain our current way of life. I can see a problem in that. There's a bit of a problem. There's loads of different stuff going on, or loads of different problems. So unsustainable use of land, Mm. water and energy use, climate change, urbanization, pollution, invasive species. But the thing that's really worth highlighting in particular is agriculture. So where and how food is produced is one of the biggest threats to ecosystem. I think around thirty percent of all land that Sustains biodiversity is being converted for food production and agriculture is responsible for 80% of global deforestation and accounts for around 70% of our freshwater use.
1: Yeah.
0: I think a lot of the land is used to grow cereals as well, which is then fed to animals, which doesn't seem that efficient, or used as biofuel. And obviously that, you know... Some of this stuff is necessary, but perhaps not on the the scale that it's being done at, at yeah. the
2: moment. Yeah, exactly. And just to sort of ratchet up the terror even more. So talking about those kind of rates of species lost being much higher than the kind of background, and that is true, and the, and the loss of some of nature's most beautiful species is a really heartbreaking thing, yeah. but actually the, the, the consequences are, are kind of more far-reaching and scary than that. So the idea of nature being our life support system, and yeah. the concern is that we're kind of, messing around here with forces that are beyond our control and species decline lead to risks and uncertainty for economies of well-being and we might end up hitting tipping points in the same way that people talk about hitting tipping points for climate change that yeah. things like tropical forests and coral reefs are imminent risk of tipping points and we don't know what the kind of impact might be when we reach those
0: Yeah, because it's such a complex system when you take so many blocks out of it, you don't know at what point is it going to collapse. Yeah, if we lose key species, ecosystems on which we depend are going to collapse. That's really frightening. So what does this all mean at a UK level? I mean, it's a little bit silly to even look at it as a UK level because it's a global problem and nothing happens in isolation in this kind of issue. But where are we in the UK? Because as we keep mentioning on the eco-chamber, we are one (laughs) one of the world's most... Nature-depleted countries, uh, which I like to get in as often as possible. But do you have any data on what that means for us?
2: Yeah, unfortunately we're not immune to this environmental apocalypse that's been wreaked upon wildlife. So 15% of species are formally classified as at risk of extinction in Great Britain. So of the 8,431 species in Britain that have been assessed against the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Red List categories, 1,188 considered critically endangered, endangered Mm. or vulnerable. And those
0: only are only the ones of Sasso I imagine there's a lot more that aren't considered.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, so those ones in that number, so they're formally classified as threatened and therefore right. they're at risk of extinction. OK. There may well be more than that. And some of the trends in the UK are pretty alarming. So if you look at farmland birds, they've harmed in abundance since 1970. The RSPB calculates that the total number of Britain's breeding birds has crashed by 44 million over the same period. Wow. Um,
0: That's incredible. Yeah,
2: and I suppose that there's iconic species as well, like water voles or Atlantic puffins, that are considered to be threatened. Yeah. So, not a lot of good news, really.
0: Yeah, I saw that the Joint Nature Conservation Committee was saying that some specialist butterflies have gone over that same period, that last 50 year period, by 68% as well. So, I mean, it's shocking stuff, especially when you're talking about pollinators. So what can we do about it? That's all the bad news. So what can be done? What are governments doing about it? What are communities and businesses, um, you know, there must be some good stuff to say here to give us some hope.
2: Some hope, yeah. The what can be done question is, is the big one. What's needed is, is huge, like a transformative change and yeah. big ambition, political will. I mean, the one thing that people point to is that we need to take proper action to tackle climate change because that's a, a big driver of biodiversity loss. So fulfilling our Paris Agreement commitments would be a start I mean, there are other ideas around um, stuff like the task to review of the on the economics of biodiversity so the kind of main idea within that is that um we need to place a value on nature so it's kind of currently seen as being in a in a blind spot in economics and things like gross domestic product the, the review says isn't really fit for purpose when it comes to measuring the economic health mm. of nations because it has this kind of gaping hole in terms of nature that kind of idea is not without controversy though because there are some people who feel very strongly that it's not right to place a value on on nature. Mm. So there's international and domestic stuff going on as well so there's the COP 15 biodiversity summit which is um now is expected to take place in the, in the summer after being delayed I think four times now.
0: Yeah. It's really needed as well because the targets that were in place well when they were last set I think they were all kind of missed weren't they nearly all yeah, of them? Yeah, UK missed the, most of the, them. Hmm. So
2: I think these talks they've been going quite slowly and targets are Abode of contention but as you say the world has a terrible track record of achieving these targets the targets were mixed by all countries mm-hmm. not great i mean domestically like the uk there's a lot of government action in this area so there's things like biodiversity net gain there's the world leading species abundance target in the environment act there's this 30 by 30 commitment that a lot of countries are signing up to so the idea of designating 30 percent of land and ocean as protected areas by 2030 yeah. things like local nature recovery strategies so there's a lot going on but i think as we were talking about earlier in, in the podcast, not everyone is convinced by the government's motives. And and when you start to look closely at these things as well, that all is not as always as it seems.
0: A huge amount is going on in terms of policies. you say. There's also the environmental land management scheme. So that will pay farmers to improve the environment on their land and pay them to do that rather than pay them for the amount of land that they have, which was the system under the Common Agricultural Policy. But again, that's proving really fiendish to sort of iron out and show how farmers can prove all this stuff and how it will be enforced and so on. So the government is thinking about these things but whether it can actually deliver them and as you say whether the motives are or the right ones remains to be seen. So these are frightening times but there are a lot of people doing a lot of good work and let's hope the government can provide those foundations on which more of it can build. That brings us to the end of our deep dive section. Thank you Jamie. It's time now for us to move on to the Chemical Brothers. Simon Pickstone and Gareth Simpkins, who've been looking into grease proof bags, each to their own. Over to you, Gareth and Simon.
3: Thanks, Rachel. Today we're returning to an old favourite on the Chemical Brothers, but in a new and exciting form. We're of course talking about pear and polyfluoroalkyl substances, aka PFAS, which some of you may know from the Mark Ruffalo film Dark Waters.
4: PFAS is a group of substances that are all related by having a load of fluorines attached to their carbon chain.
3: Yeah and as you may be aware endocrine disruptors have got all kinds of effects on the body associated with decreased fertility, developmental effects, behavioural changes, cancer as well, cancer, accelerated puberty, bone issues, all kinds of bad things. It's a cavalcade of awfulness basically. (laughs) But it may not surprise you after so many episodes now to learn that they're also extremely common, including in food packaging. Gareth, you covered a report last year that uh, has stayed with me. And in the sleepless nights that I have, I toss and turn lying awake thinking of this particular study on PFAS in grease-proof paper. Can you highlight some of the important findings from it? What was that about?
4: Yeah, well, it was a uh, pan-European investigation, so not just in the UK, conducted by um, nine European NGOs, uh, including uh, Trust in the UK. And it found that most packaging from global fast food chains is treated with our old friend PFAS. Out of 42 samples from the likes of McDonald's, KFC, Subway and Dunkin' Donuts that were sent for analysis, 32 contained at least one the highly persistent group of chemicals. That's 32 out of 42 samples. Just out of interest,
3: how are they doing the testing for this stuff?
4: Well, it was pretty basic, to tell you the truth. It was a bead test, which you or I could do at home. Basically, you take a small drop of oil to see if it spreads out or if it forms a little droplet, a bead, on the paper itself. And that was followed by an analysis of the fluorine content of the paper. So it's, in other words, it's a pretty good indicator that PFAS has been used if that uh, picks up fluorine. The team of researchers generally couldn't identify individual substances. That's just because of the complexity of the chemistry. Precisely. You'd need a mass spectrometer, and presumably their budgets
3: didn't uh, quite stretch <laughs> <spread, laughs> to that. What have we got in the UK? What do they find? Oh, um,
4: bakery wrappers, uh, fries, sandwich, greaseproof bags from McDonald's, Subway, Pret-a-Manger, Greggs, and the co-op were all analysed, alongside pizza boxes from Papa John's, Domino's and Pizza Hut. PFAS was found in, drumroll, all of them. <laughs> so the picture across Europe is really pretty troubling to tell you the truth. A total of 38 of 99 samples of food packaging and tableware made of paper, board and moulded plant fibre, bought in the UK, Denmark, Germany, France and Netherlands and so on, between May and December 2020 were all suspected of being treated with PFAS.
3: It's one of these things that I am partial to a vegan sausage roll myself and it's something which I do think about every Tuesday when I go and get one from Greg's. I mean, the thing that you've mentioned about moulded fibre is particularly interesting because often this stuff is branded as being eco-friendly. I mean, you see these moulded plant fibre, I think you probably know what we're talking about. I, I yeah. Don't know. These bowls that are kind of coarse on the outside and smooth on the inside. I mean, there was a very similar study done by consumer rights groups based in the EU, also in, published in 2021, which highlighted these items as of particular concern because they all tested positive for PFAS. And often these either get recycled or, even worse, they get composted. <laughs> oh, boy.
4: It's not exactly great, is it? But that's what happens when you don't know what's in this stuff, and you don't know how to properly dispose yeah. of it. And the fundamental problem is it's on the market in the first place. Yeah. And, of course, part of the uh, ChemTrust study found that pizza boxes, as I said, contained PFAS, though at lower levels than other packaging. And that's quite possibly due to uh, PFAS being picked up from recycling.
3: And so then these cardboard boxes made of recycled cardboard, which you yeah. think of as a green solution, actually could be contaminated as well? Precisely.
4: It's an issue that's uh, been picked up in a, in a general sense in uh, plastics returning from China, also in uh, kids' toys as well.
3: I've got to say that one of the frustrating things about this whole process is the complete lack of transparency. I mean, it's actually really difficult to get hold of the companies to ask them about their PFAS policies. I was talking to chemtrust just recently for an update on how their kind of corporate engagement is going. They have a kind of mixed experience. So they say that co-op and Subway have been pretty responsive, co-op in particular.
4: That's not surprising about the co-op.
3: Yeah, potentially more in line with their brand. McDonald's, in fact, has come out with a phase-out pledge for 2025. So across its global supply chain, it wants to phase out the use of PFAS. So, So
4: that's clearly responding to the global concerns.
3: Yeah, but I mean, others... Don't seem to be very interested even in talking to the press about this, so I've gone in contact with Greg, with Pratt, and neither of them even got back to me. Mm, it's a bit shabby, isn't it? <laughs> Is there any sign of regulators stepping in in the UK? I've really lost track.
4: The European Commission um, proposed in its Farm to Fork strategy that uh, it would revise the uh, food contact materials rules to uh, bring them in line with the REACH regime and ensure that they can be safely recycled. I might add that the food contact materials regime, uh, both in the UK and EU, because the UK simply inherited it, is a really confusing, nonsensical mess. And that's being unduly complimentary, I'd say. Anyway, uh, officials will consider all types of uh, FCMs, including paper, board and moulded fibre, in its upcoming revision of the uh, FCM regulation. As for the UK, I am not aware of any particular regulatory move whatsoever.
3: Not to say that it's not happening. I mean, so the moral of this story is move to Denmark. <laughs> it's a lovely place and I really
4: enjoyed Copenhagen when I was there some years ago.
3: So aside from moving to Copenhagen, I suppose cutting down on... Junk food would be one way of also reducing your PFAS exposure.
4: Or just cooking your own pizzas and your own cookies, if you really must have them. (laughs) (laughs) On that
3: note, that's you, Rachel.
0: So that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and to Tess Colley, Gareth Simkins and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing any more about the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com, where you'll find lots and lots of information, more than you could possibly ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.